Oops, that's Acts 16. That's what happens when I look it up right when I'm saying 16. Acts 21 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and from the province of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. And these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. And the next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, this passage that we've just read uh, is a comfort to us on a number of fronts. For those of you who have ever succumbed to sleep during a sermon, you have a patron saint right here in the Bible. For me, on the other hand, if I preach for an hour or more, I have biblical permission to call that short. Now, whenever I prepare a text for preaching on Sunday morning, after I've wrestled with the text on my own, I always then try to, to read and to listen to what others in the Christian community, present and past, have thought and said. And what I noticed with this text is that some have preached this text and preached against falling asleep in church. And others, barely more legitimately, I think, have warned of the danger of being asleep spiritually. Being in church, but being numb to spiritual things. And both of these approaches to the text miss, or at least gloss over, the most obvious thing in this text. A man died and was brought back to life. So they miss the real importance of the text. Now, whatever this text is about, it's not about falling asleep in church. 
if anything, it encourages it. After all, it led to the young man being raised to life. A three-story fall isn't all that great, but to be raised back to life among your circle of friends and family, how cool is that? Uh, Eutychus was probably something of a celebrity after that. It's like he got rewarded for, and forgive me for this, falling dead asleep. But something more is going on here. Did you notice that Paul spoke all night, but that Luke doesn't record anything about what he says? Paul only records what happened to Eutychus. And so clearly, Luke considered this fairly important. In fact, this is the only event that Luke records, not just in this one night, but in nearly half a year or even more. Let's look at the text. We pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1, which begins, After the uproar ceased. The Apostle Paul has been in the city of Ephesus for almost three years. And that's what's happening in chapter 19 before our text. And in what could legitimately be called a wildly successful ministry, so many people, not just in Ephesus, but in the whole province of Asia, have come to faith in the Lord and as a result have set aside their worship of the goddess Artemis, whose temple was in Ephesus. And so as a result, the craftsmen who made their livings making and selling these little statues of Artemis found their bottom line being impacted pretty significantly. And so they stirred up a mob in the public square in a riot that lasted several hours. And finally, a city official got them to calm down and sent them home. And that's the uproar that chapter 20 begins with. And so shortly after this uproar, still verse 1, Paul calls some of the Ephesians together, gave them some final encouragement, bade them farewell, and set off for Macedonia. And then for five verses, all that we read is a travelogue in which Luke, the writer of Acts, glosses over a period of six months or more. So this happening on the screen will happen pretty quickly. But Paul goes to Macedonia travels through the whole region, visits and encouraging the churches there. Then he goes south into Greece and spends another three months. And when he hears of a plot against his life, he goes back again to Macedonia to plan his departure for Antioch. And they stay briefly in Philippi in Macedonia, but then they make the five-day voyage across the Aegean Sea and come to Troas. And it's in Troas that this episode with Eutychus takes place. But let's jump ahead now to verse 13. Paul leaves Troas and goes overland to Asos, and then by ship to Mytilene, and then on three successive days he sails on to Chios and Samos and Miletus. Now that is a lot of travel. In a fairly long period of time, Paul saw many cities, he saw lots of people, and he said a lot of things in a lot of churches. And yet the only thing that Luke records in all of this is this account of Eutychus. And so you have to ask, why? Why did Luke include only this? And of course, with our convictions about the Bible, what we're really asking is, why did God include this in his holy word? So let's now look at the story. Back to verse 7. Paul comes to Troas, 
the same city, by the way, where he had received his call to Macedonia in the first place back in chapter 16, and also, by the way, adjacent to the ancient city of Troy. And Paul stays in Troas for seven days, and then on the first day of the week, Sunday, Paul joins a gathering of believers to break bread, which means that they shared a meal together that included the partaking of bread and wine by which they remembered his crucified, Jesus' crucified body and his shed blood. And they do this in accordance with Jesus' instructions to remember his death for them. And then at some point during the evening, Paul begins to teach them. And again, we just, Luke doesn't record what, Luke, uh, what Paul said. But it's reasonable, I think, for us to assume that his teaching would parallel what we have written in Paul's letters that make up part of our New Testament. So some theological teaching, I'm sure, about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and its significance. Probably some practical teaching of what this reality means for the people of Troas in their day-to-day life. But whatever the content of Paul's teaching that night, uh, he must have had a lot of it. And since he was planning to leave the next morning, he meant to deliver it all on this night. And so he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, you know that it's hard enough to listen to a long sermon during the day. It's that much harder at night. And it might have been even harder on that particular night. Consider, it was probably a fairly spacious room. You know, being on the third floor, we can assume a decent-sized house. But it was either crowded enough in that room that Eutychus had to sit in the window for space, or it was so hot in that room that he had to sit in the window to get some air, or maybe both. But in any event, uh, it was less than comfortable. And Luke adds a detail that there were many lamps in the room. And that word means not just closed lanterns, but open lamps, or even better, little torches. So you have open flames giving off heat and smoke to a room full of people. Now, I don't want you to imagine kind of everyone sweating in a smoke-filled room, but it would have added another element of discomfort. And so there's poor Eutychus, a young man or a youth, which means he was probably not much older than me. Just kidding. And he hitches himself up onto the windowsill, Um, The window, of course, being just a hole in the wall, probably with shutters that were open for air. And Eutychus is beginning to fall asleep, but he is losing his fight. And you know what it's like. Your eyelids start to flutter, and you blink several times to give your head a shake, hoping to wake yourself up. Then you jerk awake and realize that you started dozing off. And eventually you cross the line and decide you just can't fight it anymore. And you shift a little bit just to get more comfortable. And that's it. You're gone. That's what happened to Eutychus that night. Maybe he glanced out the window a couple of times to the Starbucks on the corner. But it was almost midnight and so it was closed. And so sleep won and Eutychus lost. And Luke uses a couple of sets of phrases here, and it's kind of comical to see these side by side in this passage. First, that Paul prolonged his speech until midnight, and that he talked 
still longer or talked on and on. And secondly, that Eutychus sank into a deep sleep and was overcome by sleep. Eutychus never had a chance. And leaning a little probably against the side of the window, he shifted in his sleep, his shoulders slipped off the side and he was out the window. And for a terrifying two seconds, he fell three stories before he thudded onto the ground below. There aren't many things that will interrupt a church service faster than that. And there were sudden gasps and a couple of horrified screams, and then everyone charged down the stairs. I don't know if Eutychus had family in the room, but imagine the sick feeling in their stomachs as they rush down the stairs and rush outside, fearing the worst, and then discovering that the worst had happened. The young man was taken up dead. And Luke being there, he says we several times in this passage, Luke being there and being a doctor, he would not have mistaken this. And we read over these verses when we come to the passage in a couple of seconds, but all of this took place over several minutes. And if Eutychus had family there, which is entirely likely, these would have been the very worst moments of their lives, a horrifying event. But then Paul pushed through, he knelt down and wrapped his arms around Eutychus and then said to the people, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And then he said, let's eat. Seems a little anticlimactic, but I mean, you expect at least a sentence like, and they were all filled with joy and praised God. But what we read right away is just, Paul said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And then a little understated, I think, Luke adds, oh yeah, and by the way, they took the youth away and were not a little comforted. Yeah, I think so. In a horrible freak accident, Eutychus has died and then been raised to life. That is more than a little comforting. And so the story and Paul's visit in Troas ends. And it's such a great little episode. It's such a fun narrative to read and not without its touches of humor. But the question remains, why is it here? If Paul's 1,000-kilometer trek over six months, starting in and effectively ending in Ephesus, why did Luke choose to record only this? Why did God make sure that this became a part of his sacred word for all Christians at all times and in all places? Because we believe, of course, that nothing is included in or omitted from the scripture without a reason. So this is here for a purpose. God has something in mind. And we also believe that the whole scripture, both Old Testament and New, is God's revelation concerning his son, Jesus. And so we ask also, how does Eutychus's mishap and miracle turn the spotlight on Jesus? God had a purpose, and that pur- purpose concerns Jesus. And here's one more way to ask the question. 
What would be missing from the Bible's testimony concerning Jesus if this was not here? I don't think that the point is the resurrection of Eutychus in and of itself. Other than Jesus' resurrection, there are three resurrections in the Gospels themselves, two of them in Luke's. There's one resurrection already in Acts. So why does Luke go to all the trouble to fix his attention and to focus our attention on this one again? Well, the answer to that question is, I believe found in the place where three scriptural dynamics converge. By this time in the Bible's witness to Jesus, and by this time in Luke's writing of the book of Acts, there are three things in play, and where they come together, we know then why this passage is here. So I'm going to take some time now to bring these three things into view. The first one is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus himself and the significance of it. Jesus was the kingdom bringer. He announced the coming of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He taught what life in that kingdom looked like. He made the realities of God's kingdom evident on earth. And so he healed, he cast out demons, he cared for the marginalized, he raised the dead, and so on. Effectively, Jesus was saying, God's kingdom is among you now on the earth, and I am the king who is establishing this kingdom. And then in one weekend, he took on and defeated the two greatest enemies of God's kingdom, sin and death. And he defeated sin by taking our sin, as it were, upon his own shoulders and dying with it on the cross and receiving the judgment of God for that sin. And so for those who are what the Bible calls in Christ, the power then of sin is broken in that we are empowered to live increasingly godly lives, not lives enslaved to sin. The power of sin is broken, and the penalty of sin is no longer something to be feared. For the penalty has been paid already, and for those who choose to receive it, God will not punish a second time. So on the cross, sin is defeated. At the resurrection, death is defeated. God raised Jesus from the dead, and the Bible says... That that same power is at work in us. And it says that we also share in the resurrection of Christ. So the great enemies of God's kingdom have been dealt the death blow. And it's like at the resurrection, Jesus stuck a flag into the ground and said, I claim this world for my father, for God my father, for his kingdom. So rather than waiting for our experience of a future kingdom of God, the resurrection of Jesus says decisively that the kingdom of God is here. That eternity has broken into history and is advancing. And the book of Revelation, written incidentally to first century Christians, says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Present tense. So the resurrection of Jesus is the sign of God's eternal kingdom in the present, here on earth, 
and here in history. And when Jesus ascended again to the Father's right hand, it did not mean that the kingdom left too. Because his followers, under Jesus' authority and empowered by Jesus' Holy Spirit, they carried the kingdom forward and they themselves became witnesses to Jesus. And so you see the kingdom of God advancing in them. Sin repented of and forgiven. People healed. Demons exercised. Hypocrisy judged. Generosity demonstrated. And in Acts chapter 9... The dead raised. The power of God exercised in the raising of Christ from the dead, his resurrection being the definitive sign of the kingdom of God, this same power at work in the life of the church. That is the first dynamic or factor that is at play when we get to Acts 20. The next two have to do with Luke's writing. Who is Luke writing for? He's not just penning a gospel for general distribution. He has someone in mind and he has a purpose in writing it. So let's go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 where he writes, In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. Luke is writing this for someone named Theophilus, which is a Gentile, not a Jewish name. So what is this first book that Luke refers to? Well, it's his gospel, the gospel of Luke. And he begins that book with these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Why is Luke writing these two books to Theophilus? So that this Gentile friend may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. And Theophilus, we may be sure, has not been taught merely the facts. But he has been taught the significance of those things. In other words, Luke is writing so that the faith of Theophilus in Jesus may be established on the firmest of foundations. In writing to a Gentile, Luke is very intentional about selecting and recording those events that show that the gospel of Jesus is not merely a gospel for the Jews. It is not a peculiarly Jewish religion, but it is an all-encompassing gospel. It's for everyone, for tax collectors, Samaritans, prodigals, widows, children, and Gentiles. One of the unique features of Luke's writings, by the way, is that Roman centurions are always portrayed favorably. And so it's no accident that when Luke writes Acts, out of all of the ministry of the apostles, Luke includes the conversion of the Samaritans, the conversion of the Ethiopian official, the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius and his household, and the explosion of Christianity in Antioch in Syria. 
Luke's agenda is to shore up Theophilus' faith and reveal that faith as a faith for everyone, Jew and Gentile, and Theophilus himself. So that's the second dynamic that's at play. Resurrection is a sign of God's kingdom in the here and now. And Luke's writing to a Gentile friend to establish him firmly in the gospel of Jesus, letting him know that the gospel is equally for him. And finally and thirdly, we have to notice the shape of the book of Acts. And again, where Luke could have written much about the activities of the other apostles, he focuses in chapters 1 through 12 on the apostle Peter. And his few digressions highlight his Gentile agenda. Like I said, the historic unbelief of the Jews in chapter 7. And then the conversion of the Samaritans and the gospel's impact in Antioch and so on. Then in Acts chapter 13, and from there on, Luke follows the apostle Paul on his Gentile mission. And it is striking as he does this that the the ministries of Peter and Paul parallel each other very closely. Both, sorry, Peter's ministry began at Pentecost with a powerful divine encounter with the Holy Spirit. Paul's ministry begins with a powerful divine encounter with the risen and glorified Christ. Both Peter and Paul had miraculous deliverance from prison. Both had encounters with magicians or sorcerers. At one point, Peter, if his shadow fell on anyone, they were healed. And later, if Paul's uh, handkerchief that he had used touched anyone, they were healed. Both Peter and Paul laid hands on believers who had not yet experienced or received the Holy Spirit. And in both cases, the Holy Spirit came on them when Peter and Paul prayed. Samaritans and the Ephesians, respectively. For both Peter and Paul, there are recorded accounts of a crippled man, crippled from birth, being healed. And Luke seems to be saying by recording these events kind of in parallel fashion that the gospel ministry is no different for Jews and Gentiles. What Peter does and experiences as an apostle of Christ for the Jews, Paul does and experiences as an apostle to the Gentiles. So we have three things. Resurrection as the definitive sign of God's kingdom. We have Luke writing to shore up the faith of a Gentile as a gospel for the Gentiles and the parallel ministries of Peter and Paul. Now in Acts chapter 13 verses 36 to 43, there is a recorded the raising from death of Tabitha at the hands of Peter. Resurrection as a sign of the presence of God's kingdom is demonstrated in the ministry to the Jews. And the raising of Tabitha is Peter's last recorded act of ministry to the Jews. It's as if his ministry to the Jews culminates in the raising from the dead of this woman, Tabitha. So when we read through the account of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, we would expect, and indeed we might say, there has to be a resurrection for the Gentiles. The definitive sign of God's kingdom in the Gentile world, too. And so now we come to Acts 20, 
And we have not Paul's teaching, but the raising of Eutychus from the dead. And this is Paul's last act of recorded ministry, of intentional ministry to the Gentiles before his arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem. The raising from death of Eutychus is the culmination of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And so now I think we can answer the question, why is this story here? It is here to demonstrate conclusively that there is no difference for Jew and Gentile in the kingdom of God. Jesus died for the sin of the Jew and for the sin of the Gentile. The power of the resurrection is at work in the Jew and in the Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile share equally in the kingdom of God and share equally in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and equally have status of acceptance before God himself. And the story is here so that Theophilus and you, another Gentile, can be certain that the love and the grace of God expressed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin is for you. This may not be earth-shattering for you. It probably isn't. Because we are used to the idea of Christianity as a world religion. But it was earth-shattering for the Jews of that day, who either rejected it outright and often violently, or, in the case of the early church, had to be convinced by an active intervention of God that Jesus was not only for them. And it was earth-shattering for the Gentiles who received the gospel, this good news, with great joy. And 2,000 years later, as we worship together as a group of Gentiles, not Jews, Gentiles who have received the same gospel, and the kingdom of God has come to us. The forgiveness of sins by the death and the resurrection of Jesus has come to us. The kingdom of God is for us. We become part of the people of God. And so the question that I would ask of us and of you this morning is this. Are you certain of the things that you have been taught? Are you certain of the things that you have been taught? And that includes for us, as it did for Theophilus, are you certain of the facts? The trustworthiness of the scripture as God's word that Jesus really is the son of God who really was crucified and really did rise again and that life everlasting is in him. I've preached on all those things before and I will in the next, within the next year so I'm not going to do that now. But I want to touch on a few things that we have been taught. First of all, the forgiveness of sin. Now, we say and sing very easily of the forgiveness of sins. And we have no trouble, I think, affirming the forgiveness of sins by faith in the de death and resurrection of Jesus for other people. But do you believe, are you certain, that your sins are or can be, if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus, that those sins are forgiven? 
And by forgiven, I mean covered over, washed away. Do you believe that God really does not hold your sins against you? That he will never dredge them up? Do you really believe that from God's side, your sin, it doesn't matter what it was, your sin has no impact on his his loving relationship with you? Do you believe that the sins that you have committed this past week, and we can all name some, that they are forgiven in Christ and were forgiven before you committed them? Your ignoring of God when you knew that he was reminding you of himself. Your burst of temper at your kids. Your gossip or criticism. Your slip into that old sin. We can't help but feel sometimes, I can't help but sometimes, that God shakes his head at us and wishes that we could do better. That he's disappointed with us and that he will, with sadness, keep us at arm's length until we do better. That is frankly a lie from hell and it is not the gospel that we say that we believe. Do our sins impact our relationship with God? Yes, but from our end. It's we who keep arm's length from God because we think we can't presume on his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. It's we who sometimes turn our backs momentarily on God and then assume that if we turn around again, he'll be wearing a frown. I'm not sure that we believe in the forgiveness of sin. But let me proclaim the gospel to you, that you may be certain of what you have been taught. God gave his infinitely perfect son to bear the weight of your sins and the punishment for that sin on the cross. And you lay hold of that forgiveness by trusting him. We call that faith. But you cannot do anything to earn it. You cannot do anything to become worthy of it. Therefore, you do not forfeit your forgiveness by your sins that you engage in. By faith in Christ, God holds forgiveness in his heart for you and for your sins, and you are not in any position to remove that forgiveness from God's heart. The very thought of it, as it were, of suddenly making God unmerciful is absurd. We just don't have that power. But we think it, don't we? It's so easy to think. But you have been taught that God has drawn you into his kingdom. And there you are. That the power that God exercised in the raising of Jesus from the dead is at work in you not only to bring you to himself, but to keep you there. And sin has no power to remove you from God. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sin? As much for you as for anyone. Do you believe in the kingdom of God? That means, do you believe that he reigns over you and over every situation and circumstance of your life? It might feel sometimes as if circumstances have pushed you out the window and there you lie on the pavement, broken and beyond salvage. 
You know, stunned by what is taking place, fearful and uncertain of a new reality, the diagnosis, the death, the crisis, the prospect of a future that is only painful. Do you believe that God is able to kneel down and put his arms around you and say, do not be alarmed. There is still life here. Do I believe that God is at work in my life for my good? In my own circumstances, do I believe that he may even heal and is certainly able to? In Christ, you don't just have a Savior in whom is forgiveness of sin. In Christ, you have been brought into a kingdom. And in that kingdom, there is a perfect king. Perfect in his love and goodness. Perfect in his sovereignty. Perfect in his power. In every facet of your life, and for you as much as anyone, Theophilus and you, in every facet of your life, he rules in love. He is a king, and he is a good king. He can be trusted. Do you believe that? See, the story of Eutychus is a demonstration that the power of God exercised in the raising of Jesus is at work now, today, not just in the closed circle of Jesus and his disciples and his few years on earth in the Jewish first century world, but that the power of the resurrection and the reality of the kingdom of God is active two decades later in Troas, and two millennia later in Calgary. And of this, we can be certain. Let's pray. Lord, it is so very hard for us sometimes, and hard for me, to count on your unending mercy and your perfect reign in our security in Christ. It is difficult for us to believe sometimes that the very power that you exercise in defeating death and sin and raising your son even from death and raising him to stand at your very right-hand side in the glory of heaven, that that power is at work in us. It is beyond comprehension for us. And so it is hard to be certain, especially when circumstances and feelings and our own sin would tempt us to think otherwise. But I thank you for these signs of resurrection, resurrection that, that the power of Christ continues to be exercised, that the kingdom continues to be advanced, Jew and Gentile, and that we get to be a part of it. I thank you that you've reached out to us. Thank you for the perfection of your love and power. And I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would cultivate confidence, even certainty, in the things of the gospel. That we would be certain enough to plant our feet firmly and live our lives confidently out of the gospel. But we need your Holy Spirit and your help.
Thank you that you promise even that. And practice on us in the week to come that just in these seven days, we will trust you and seek you and rely on your power alone with everything in our lives and in our hearts. This we pray in the name of the Jesus who lives and who reigns. Amen.